Revelation chapter 13, uh, just be it known, this is a very explosive chapter. It's the chapter they make movies out of and write books about, and uh, you know, it's the chapter with the beast and the mark and all that stuff. And um, there is kind of this disposition in uh, many church circles, not in others, but in many church circles that things like politics really have no place in the pulpit, and where you will never, probably ever see me go down the voter's guide or endorse a particular candidate, you need to know that the Bible is political from cover to cover. I mean, we have kings and governors and laws and statutes and on and on, so the idea that we're not going to talk politics, culture, social theory is patently unbiblical. That, that is, it's all through, all through the text. So we're going to find that in this chapter. There's, a, there's very much going to be this opposition uh, that the church is going to find itself surrounded by that we need to be conversant with. We need to understand uh, what is going on in the world in which we live because what's going on in the world in which we live will find its way into our church if we're not aware that it's going on. I mean, there is definitely a battle taking place there and we need to we need to be kind of self-conscious about this. Um, I remember years ago, I don't play, ba- I still play a little volleyball in the sand because it's so, so forgiving, you know, and the sand is so soft and I've become so soft and we, we have a relationship that way. But I used to play a lot more basketball. I don't play basketball anymore. But I remember one of the last times I played basketball at my club, I might have been in my 50s at the time, and I was in a game, and uh, there was a guy guarding me that was significantly better than I. And not only was he better than I, during the course of the game, he kept saying, who's your daddy? <laughs> like, hey, who's your daddy? I'm like, well, my dad was Lou Vigiano from Brooklyn. But that's not what he meant. What he basically was saying is, I'm in control of your game, which he was. So it was a metaphor. He wasn't actually my dad, but he was in control. And uh, I think what we're going to have to ask ourselves in Revelation 13 is, is, who's your daddy? Who's in charge? Who's in control? To whom will you go? Who do you trust? And these are the questions we have to ask when we begin to, to take a look at the church, the Word of God, our Lord, the world by which we're surrounded. This is something that the author of the Revelation is telling his readers they need to determine who's in charge of your life. Revelation 13, now we're going to just look at one verse, so don't get worried. I'm not going to, next week won't be verse 2, where we'll take bigger swaths of, of the passage, but I feel like we need to kind of start with a, with a real understanding of how this is going to shoot us out for the remainder of this chapter. Revelation 13, verse 1, hear now the word of God. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we do pray that you would help us to understand who is governing our hearts, who is vying for our allegiance and affection. 
Help us, Father, to be, be, to be able to ever isolate, to recognize that Jesus and Jesus alone should be the Lord of our hearts, the one governing our souls, governing our ethics, governing our direction. Help us to be aware of how we're being tugged and help us to resist those wiles, those, those lies that would have us move in another direction. And we do pray as we, as we go through this chapter and we examine what was happening to this early church, we'd be able to see those types of things that happened throughout the course of history and even in our very day. Bless this time. Grant us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like I have a fairly decent grasp of my own strengths and my own weaknesses after all these years. And, and so when, when I come to portions in Scripture that are addressing things that are a weakness of mine, I feel it's easier for me to preach them because I'm like, I've had to work through this, and now I can help others work through this weakness, whatever, whatever it might be. But in all openness, and at the risk of maybe sounding a little proud or or boastful, the quest for power has never really been an enticement for me. Really, if if anything, if anybody, anybody who knows me knows that my weakness really falls on the other end of the spectrum. If anything, my weakness would fall into the the issue of complacency. I, um, I much prefer a beach chair over a throne, if you were to offer me one or the other. I like, I've been enjoying over the last few years all these British, you know, documentaries and shows, you know, The Crown and what have you. And uh, it's given me a different take on, you know, British royalty. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you'd like to be the king, right? You want to be the queen. You want to be the king. You want to be in charge. But after watching this and, like, looking at myself and evaluating, the words of, of Shakespeare are something that I can very much sympathize with when he said, Uneasy is the head that wears the crown. I don't want the crown. You know, I, I'd rather be doing something else than wearing the crown. I had lunch this last week with an old, with an old college roommate of mine who became a military doctor. And uh, we started talking about this, similar to myself. He never viewed power as some sparkly object that he, that he wanted, but but he, when he was a military doctor, was in the heat and the thick of battle. So he was very much involved. And he goes, and you know, it was weird. He goes, organizations started coming to me, like CIA, CIA, FBI, you know, and they started asking for his advice. And he's like, all of a sudden, he's realizing um, this idea that I have power is kind of invigorating. It was almost like Turkish delight, Right? Like you taste a little bit of it and you're like, I'd like some more. What do I have to do to keep this going? You know, so it can be very insidious, this idea of power. The quest for power can be intoxicating. And there may not be a character in all of Scripture who wants power and wants to maintain power more than the devil. The devil wants power. And what we're learning as we move through the pages of the Revelation 
is that the means by which this devil seeks to keep and maintain that power is through human crowns, through human authority. In chapter 12, we saw the crown of Herod seeking to snuff out and devour the Christ child that he might remain the ultimate ruler of the age. He wanted to to devour the Christ child that he might continue to have sway, as John wrote, over the whole world. He's a threat to my power. He must be done away with. But he failed against the Christ child. He failed against Christ. And then he turns his efforts to the body of Christ, the church. We ended chapter 12 with the dragon, the devil, frustrated that he could not snuff out the early faithful Jewish Christian church. He went after Christ. He went after the early faithful Jewish Christian church. He failed because those faithful Christians heeded the words of Christ when Jesus said, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, head for the hills of Judea, which they did, and they were nourished and preserved through Christ because of the obedience that they had in terms of his counsel. And now at the very end of chapter 12, the enraged devil, we read, makes war with the rest of her offspring, which I take to understand as the international church comprised of both faithful Jew and Gentile. So he's failed at the the child, he failed at that Jewish faithful Christian church, and now he's going after the church in general. And that shoots us off into chapter 13, this whole new section of the Revelation. The dragon, this devil, will now utilize a formidable power in his efforts to snuff out the advancement of the truth. He wants the truth, and I'd say the truth, capital T, he wants the truth vanquished. Perhaps, and I'm just speculating here, perhaps he thought that he underestimated what was necessary to maintain his darkness by using somebody as irrelevant and powerless as Herod. You know, I mean, it was, it was Herod, and Herod failed miserably. So now Satan is going to up his game to the most powerful nation on earth. And perhaps the most powerful nation ever on the earth in terms of its context historically. Rome. So it's no longer Herod. Now we're looking at the Caesars. So let's work through this a little bit. Again, just one verse this morning. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Well, who or what are we talking about here? If you're standing 
on the shore of the, you know, the sea in, in Asia Minor, or for that matter in Jerusalem or any, any portion of that region, and you're looking at the horizon, what you're looking at is Rome. So if I'm standing on the shore and I'm looking out over the Mediterranean and I'm in Asia Minor, the direction that I'm looking at is Rome. Think of it this way, because we get this image of this beast rising up out of the sea. Think of it this way, because it's kind of phenomenological language, you know, like a sunset or something like that. Think of a horizon and a ship coming out of the horizon. It's rising up out of the horizon. This is what he is seeing. He's standing there and he's looking, and he's seeing something coming up, as it appears, up out of the sea. Now, adding impact to this vision is how the sea, and this will help us later when we get to chapters 21 and 22, the sea in Scripture is often associated with evil and darkness and turbulence. You see, here we, we read of the beast coming out of the sea, right? He's ascending, as it were, out of the horizon. But in, but in chapter 11, verse 7, and in chapter 17, verse 8, this beast is coming out of the abyss. So is it the sea or the abyss? And I've been saying the symbolic language, is it's both. We're then given, okay, so you got this beast coming out from the direction of Rome. And just so you know, I'm going to make the argument, not just here, but throughout the next few chapters, that what we're talking about in terms of the beast is the Roman Empire. I think we're going to see a lot of reasons why that is the case. I'm not going to make all those arguments now, but I believe that is the enemy that is going to seek to snuff out the church. But then we're given this very bizarre description, you know, with heads and horns and crowns, that would be almost impossible to paint. You look at, you ever, especially in Revelation, you see these descriptions and you're like going, I'm trying to materialize that description in my head. Some people have tried to paint what this looks like. I'm, you know, somewhat accurate, but it's really difficult to kind of go, wow, how does this all work with the heads and the horns and the crowns? But what's not unclear is that it's talking about heads and horns and crowns. Those are part of the description. What do those things mean? What are we being told about this enemy that's going to seek to crush the church. Seven heads. Well, seven heads, I believe, designate life. The beast is hard to kill. You take, you take one head off, and there's another. It's kind of like I had mentioned earlier, like, like a hydra, right? You cut its head off, and two more grow. It's this idea that the defeating of the Roman Empire would go well beyond the removal of one person. You get rid of one person, that beast is still there. Then we have ten horns. Well, we've talked about this before. Horns symbolize power. So you've got something that is hard to kill. It is very powerful. But then we read something that maybe when you read it was not immediately apparent. Because if I were to ask you, 
Where does one normally place a crown? Yeah, you put it on your head. But, but it's not on the head, right? It's on the horn. Well, these crowns are not on the head and they're on the horn. And that tells us that the ten crowns on the horns of the head is the beast ruling by power rather than by head or heart. The image here is might makes right. The crown isn't on the head. The crown is on the symbol of power. What we see rising out of the horizon is a legitimate authority figure. It's got a crown which has set its sights on the crumbling of the church. Now, it would take us, I think, beyond the scope of this message to dig too deeply into social theory and political ethics and what have you, although some of that's going to come up. It has to come up. But at this point, I found it enlightening when Dr. Bonson, in his class on Revelation, referenced... uh, Thrumisicus, who said this, Justice is but a euphemism for the will of the stronger in society. The strong does what they will, and they call it justice. How many times have you heard stuff like that, you know? We just want those people to pay their fair share. You ever heard that one? Pay their fair share. And then when you go, well, what is their fair share? Is it the same percentage? Because, like, in my mind... You know, it's a percentage. I think, biblically, you can argue it's a percentage. You know, the tithe was 10%, no matter what your income was. It wasn't, you didn't change it. And then when you kind of examine what their fair share, it's not fair at all. It's more. But I'm, gonna, but I'm in control, so I'll decide what justice is. I'll decide what fair means. And we all sit there and kind of believe it. Why? Because they're in charge. Microphone's in their face. Now, let me tell you, We're going to be treading through some very turbulent waters. I mean, treading may not be the good metaphor. We're going to be scuba diving here into some very turbulent waters through Revelation 13. And I'm going to hit, this is kind of a touchy subject, but it it must be discussed. Christians are called to have, and I hope this is a commitment we all have, a general deferential disposition toward legitimate authority figures. I think we should all have our our default position to somebody who's in a position of legitimate authority, like our starting place would be, yes ma'am, no man, yes sir, yes, no sir, and so forth. This idea that I am respecting the fact that you have a legitimate authority position. We are to recognize that whether it's political power or some other hierarchy established in Scripture, that is a gift from God. Hierarchy is the alternative to anarchy. And anarchy results in madness. And God has established hierarchy, and we should respect that. But what we're going to learn in Revelation 13, is that when one begins to deify the state, to deify means to assign godhood to. 
when people begin to assign to the state that which belongs to God and God alone, the state becomes bestial. You see, Romans 13 is not a blanket endorsement of any human and all human institutions, no matter what. We need to recognize when things are becoming beastly. I've been asked, and this again, this goes beyond what we could talk about in detail this morning. I've been asked, often I am asked, by those who were raised and are still under, as it were, the authority of abusive mothers and fathers. They'll say, well, Pastor Paul, should I still honor and obey an abusive mother, an abusive father? I'm asked the same question from wives. Pastor Paul, should I remain under the authority of an abusive husband? Or you might ask yourself, if, you know, if the elders of your church became abusive, are you required to continue to submit to the authority of abusive elders? They've abused their authority? These are not always easy questions to answer, right? Because we're, we're naturally rebellious, and we want to just immediately go, yeah, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, you know, the fact that you've decided this, I'm determining that, that, is, that that's abusive, when maybe or maybe it isn't. But for now, it's enough to say there comes a time when authority figures must be defied. To put it in very simple biblical terms, to quote Peter, we must obey God rather than man. Now, it's not always easy to figure that out. Again, I mean, let me just back up a little bit because I don't want to be accused of like inciting a riot, you know, or some mob. I don't want you to mob out here with your pitchforks and your torches or something. There should be a general default deferential disposition. So, so whatever I'm going to say in chapter 13 should not be used as a license for, you know, viscerally generated rebellion and disrespect. But something we need to recognize as we organize our thoughts, as we kind of, you know, garden through Revelation 13, is that Revelation 13 is not in conflict with Romans 13. You see, in Romans 13, we are told to subject ourselves to governing authorities. Revelation 13 appears to be saying just the opposite. Pray for me and for yourself that God would help us to know when one is required over the other. It's not that easy to figure this out. But this verse, I think, that we're reading is designed to help us sort this out. To help us go, well, wait a minute, okay, at what point is the state being deified? At what point is the state, the government, saying, I am your God? Because it's not like immediate, right? It's gradual. It's insidious. You know, it's been said the road to hell is not a cliff, right? You slowly are moving in the direction, and all of a sudden you realize that I view the Constitution as more authoritative than the Scriptures. 
I view the voice of the people as more authoritative than the Word of God, and on and on, and you don't even realize where you've arrived. You see, I talked about the heads and the horns and the crowns, but there's one other thing we learn in this one verse. We've learned, number one, it's got a crown, so it's a legitimate authority. We've learned that it's generationally strong, right? You cut off one head, it still goes. You know, there were numerous emperors, numerous Caesars. When, When Caligula died, it wasn't like everything is okay. When Nero died, it wasn't like everything is okay. I mean, there was always somebody replacing. We learned that it's powerful and that it's going to use its power instead of its heart or head. So, so unlike our Savior, who had at his disposal all the power of creation. Right? Remember when Jesus said, all I have to do, you know, Peter's getting all excited and he's, he cuts off Malchus's ear and Jesus puts it back on. You know, I always say at that point, if I'm one of the Roman soldiers and I see that, I'm, I'm thinking about changing my position here. At least Malchus, right? It's like, whoa. All right, maybe i got to rethink my epistemology and ethics here. But Jesus says, you know, do you not think that I could call six legions of angels right now? And these Roman soldiers would be snuffed out. But Jesus did not use his power for selfish reasons. He came not to be served, but to serve. He utilized that whatever power he had to be a sacrifice to save us, unlike the power of human potentates. So we learn all that with the crown and the heads and the horns. But there's one other thing that we see. That on his heads was a blasphemous name. So unlike the high priests, who wore the divine name upon their foreheads, we read in the Old Testament, kind of signifying who was in charge of human heart and thought. The heads of the state wore blasphemous names. Let me tell you, there is a very common and I think foolish notion that one can separate religion from politics. One can never separate religion from politics. One can never separate religion from any human endeavor. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care if you're the president, a senator, dog catcher, or coaching your son's little league team. You cannot, the moment you say you ought, you've become religious. The moment you said, Hey, guys, that's bad sportsmanship. You've become religious. It's necessary. You can call it something other than religion if you like. Now, as an apostate, people seek to exclude the triune God from their legislative chambers you know, you, you, you might go, well, why, why do you say it that way? Because, you know, I mean, whatever you want to say about, like, the nation we happen to be in, 
you know, I mean, Ben Franklin said, hey, we need to start Congress with what? A prayer. You know, I mean, if you've been to, you know, our nation's capital, God is all over the place. You know, so, but now, you know, it's kind of like, hey, you know, this is, he's overstayed his welcome. It's time to move him out. But here's the deal that most people don't recognize. As we're seeking to exclude the triune God from the affairs of humanity, we find people themselves become inherently and viciously religious with the force of a Greek god or the fickle disposition of the pantheon of Rome. We see our political luminaries in their thick chairs deciding what a human is. I can, I'll tell you what a human is, and I'll tell you if it should live or die. I mean, I may think of the Apostle Paul talking about the darkness of the human heart, professing to be wise. They've become fools. And you sit there with your microphone in front of you, with all the cameras on you, telling the world what a man is, what a woman is, who should be fed, who shouldn't be fed, whose money should be used to feed them. Um, you've, you've deified yourself. I will tell you when life begins. And I'll tell you when it's okay to end it, whether it's an unborn baby or whether it's somebody at the end of their life, and we sit there with such confidence. It's inherently religious. So you have to ask yourself, well, who's your God going to be? Is your God going to be the senator from Ohio, or is your God going to be the triune God who lives? This is what is the early church is being faced with. Now, you might, you might say, well, you know, Pastor Paul, I think you're overstating the issue in our current context. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I mean, these are things I want us to all be aware of. We, all, we need to be aware of the fact that it is in the nature of man, when he reaches to a position of power, man and woman, to, to, to engage in some form of self-deification. I have so stated. Matter of fact, I've been elected. The vox populi, you know, the voice of the people. They've made me, in, they've put me in charge, and I've decided what will be right and wrong and true and false, and reality will be determined by me. So I hope that we're wise enough to see that when it happens. Now, again, you know, I don't, this isn't necessarily a referendum on America, 21st century America. It may be. I, we all just need to be aware of the tide, the direction, and not just sit there, because if we sit there and do nothing, it is so common today, and I find it, I have to say, so irritating that there's such a commitment among Christians to be uninvolved. I was listening to a podcast just this week of a Reformed Baptist. I can forgive him for his Baptist view. But he was really making an argument that Christians should not seek or the church should not seek to improve the state, that the, they, we should not seek to improve the nation. Like we are to just cloister ourselves, huddle up in the corner and hope they don't touch us. So much so that in this podcast, and again, I think the guy was a Christian, he sounded very nice, and I don't want to sound uncharitable, but when he was talking about the Great Commission, 
And I thought to myself, all right, as he gets into the Great Commission, what's he going to say? And he goes, you know, we're called to make disciples. Amen. Baptize. Amen. And then I'm like, all right, continue teaching them to obey, Jesus says, all that I've commanded you. And then he said, in the context of the church. I'm like, okay, let me get out my Bible, because I don't see that in the Great Commission. And he, he actually even, you know, again, I don't want to sound uncharitable, but he misquotes it. He goes, he goes no, we're, we're called to make disciples out of every nation. That's not what it says. We are disciple the nations. You're, you're like... You're twisting it around in order to accommodate your anti-cultural amelioration disposition that the scriptures, I think, clearly teach us to engage in. I mean, the world should be a better place as a result of the gospel being fulfilled. How, can, how is that not clear to people? And we're like, no, 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 we don't want to engage in that. That's politicizing the church. And yet here in Revelation chapter 13, we've got a beast coming out of the sea in a position of legitimate power and, at, and finally gets to the point where it's engaging in self-deification. These names, these blasphemous names upon their heads. So whether or not, at what level this is true today, you know, it's hard because, you know, things are changing so rapidly. But at very least, as we're seeking to understand the Word of God, Roman imperial theology sought to revere the Caesars as gods. You remember earlier in our study, when we were going through the seven letters to the seven churches, we talked a little bit about Polycarp, who was the bishop at Smyrna one of the seven churches that Revelation was written to. In 155, he's the bishop. And I, I think it's worth restating this story. 86 years old. And he's told, you know, he's, he's, and everybody loved this guy. Even the Romans loved him because he was, you know, he was just the personality that he had. He was, he was wise and lovable and thoughtful and altruistic and philanthropic. I mean, there was everything about him, but they were like, look at you need, you, what you, all you need to do is pinch just a little incense to Caesar. Now, and, and you know what? Three words. Caesar is Lord. You need to do that, otherwise you're going to be torn apart by wild animals. Like we, and they didn't want to do that to him. He responded, and I, I hope this is inspirational. You know, this is a brother in Christ. Four score and six years, he said, have I served him, and he has never done me injury how then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? Notice, notice what's going on here. They didn't ask him to blaspheme, did they? No, they said, pinch a little incense and say Caesar is Lord. We're not asking you to blaspheme, but how did he understand it? It's blasphemy. Polycarp was threatened then to be burned. It's amazing how how hot it can get against those who want to just be faithful. The Sabbatarians, 
they were called the Sabbatarians, they were, they were very likely part of that synagogue of Satan that we read of in chapters 2 and 3. They were so angry with Polycarp that they literally gathered wood on the Sabbath, which would have been a violation of their law that he might be burned. And we do finally have a record of Polycarp's final response. So they're gathering wood and they're going, look at you got you to do this. And he said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little while is extinguished, but are ignorant of the coming fire that is reserved for the ungodly. So why do you delay? Do whatever you will. He was burned and he was refused an honorable burial in order that nobody would be inspired by him. And here we are 2,000 years later, and I don't know about you, I find it inspiring. The blasphemous names may be referring to the very actions of the Caesars, just so we understand what's going on here. Each emperor, just so you understand what this language, you've heard of Augustus, right? Augustus, Sebastus. Do you know what these words mean? They mean one to be worshipped. The august one. The one to be worshipped. According to Chilton, David Chilton, they also took the name Divas. What does that mean? It means God. They took the name Deos. Theos, also meaning God. Nero commanded absolute obedience and had a 120-foot-high image of himself constructed. He also, on the coins, with his image on the coins, had the words, Savior and Benefactor of the world. Makes me nervous when I see... You know, you, you used to see this really only in the Middle East, but we, we do it now during uh, elections, big posters of people's faces. You know, it's like, oh, that's, that's my, he's going to take care of me. That's where my hope is. The big face of the person, the savior, benefactor. I was having lunch with a, a man a number of years ago, whose daughter was an, what played for me. She was an athlete, and um, I did um, ended up doing her funeral, which was it was sad. She died an untimely death, and we're just sitting around the table with the family. And there was somebody at that point who had been elected, who I probably wasn't thrilled about, you know, that person being elected. And my buddy, who by the way is the sweetest guy imaginable, and they sitting around the table, and everybody's feeling a little consternation and stuff. And the, 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 the candidate's name came up, and he made this statement that I felt very uncomfortable with. He said to his family, don't worry, he'll take care of us. I'm, I'm not looking for any political candidate to take care of me. You know who I want to take care of me? I want God to take care of me. That's what's being put before the readers of Revelation chapter 13. In whom will you trust? 
who will you obey? The one you trust is the one you're going to obey. Where are you going to go for that? Now, we're going to speak more about this. This was more or less an introduction. I'm going to have to end here. Suffice it to say that this chapter is going to put the question before the reader. In whom will you trust? This chapter will put before the reader, who are you going to serve? And I know this doesn't make for a good movie or a novel, but this is going to be put forth in the way of whether or not you are going to be willing to take the mark of the beast upon your forehead or your hand. A lot of times, you've, you've heard of the mark of the beast, right? I, I feel like the false theology connected today to the mark of the beast has a whole generation, matter of fact, multiple generations of people looking out the window. We're sitting here looking out the window while the enemy is coming in our back door. We're, we're just kind of going, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder who he is. I wonder what it's going to be like. All the while not recognizing the very subtle means by which the beast is seeking to win our allegiance and have us trust him and have us put our faith in him. And just so you know, and we'll get to this when the time comes, the forehead, which is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 6, talking about the law of God, on your forehead and on your hand is not a tattoo, it's not a subcutaneous computer chip, it's not the hand stamp at Disneyland as off the rails as Disney has gotten. It is the way you think. It's what's going on in your mind and your heart, followed by the way you behave, whatever your hand findeth to do. That's the real danger. That's what we're going to have to ask, and I do pray that as we get through it, that our answer will always be the answer that we see not only in Revelation, but in every book in the Bible, maybe best said, said by Joshua with the words, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to be wise to our environment, help us to understand those things, whether they're thoughts or ideas or, or people that would seek to win our affection. And have us trust in them rather than in you. Help us, Father, even as we come together on the Lord's Day, week after week, to be reminded of who truly sits upon the throne. Help us to always know from from whence true wisdom comes and the only place where redemption is found. And we do pray, Father, for not only our culture, our community, our nation, but the entire world that you would open eyes to see the folly when the dragon would seek to utilize the crowns of the world to depose the one who truly is king of kings and lord of lords, that we might be not won over by the lies, but embraced by the truth. And we pray in the very name of the truth, Jesus Christ. Amen.